CC thinks that the mass uprising of 2011 to 2013, that they were not justified or uh, legitimate. Rather than seeing these mass uprisings and mass revolts and mass demonstrations as reflecting deep-seated legitimate concerns that white segments of the Egyptian population had towards the government, including the judiciary and the police, he saw uh, these uprisings as really a sign of a conspiracy. A conspiracy by uh, outside actors, uh, by uh, human rights groups, by Western governments that finance these groups, by Qatar, Turkey and Serbia, uh, to bring down the Egyptian state. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into our important discussion today about the political repression in Egypt, courts under military dictatorship. I am Yasmin Omar, a human rights lawyer, the United Nations officer at the Committee for Justice, and a proud member of the U.S. Committee to End Political Repression in Egypt. I'd like to start by thanking the U.S. Committee to End Political Repression in Egypt and the Haymarket Books for organizing this event. Also, I'd like to thank our co-sponsors, the Committee for Justice, Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, the Freedom Initiative, Internationalism from Below, Middle East Research and Information Project, and St. John Center for International and Comparative Law. There is a sign hanging inside each courtroom in Egyptian courts that says justice is the basis of ruling. However, it seems like this saying is far from being true in Egypt. Since the military coup in 2013, led by then the head of the armed forces and current president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the Egyptian state has gradually turned the judiciary into subservient extension of presidential powers in order to eradicate all opposition and critical voices. Today, we'll discuss what happened to the Egyptian judiciaries with a brilliant panel of speakers. Professor Khalid Fahmi, Welcome to our panel. He is a professor of modern Arabic studies at the University of Cambridge. His most recent book is In Quest of Justice, Islamic Law and Forensic Medicine in Modern, in modern Egypt, won the Peter Joneville Stein Book Award from the American Society for Legal History in, in, in 2019. Welcome, Professor Khaled, and thank you for joining us today. 
Next, Dr. Nancy O'Kale, who is the president and the CEO of the Center for, for International Policy in Washington, D.C. She is a leading scholar, policy analyst, and advocate with more than 20 years of experience working on global human rights, democracy, and security issues with, of course, a special focus on the Middle East and North Africa. Welcome, Dr. O'Kale. And finally, Professor Richard Falk, who is the Albert G. Mulbank, Professor of International Law and Practice, and he he is a distinguished visiting professor in global international studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In, 20, in 2008, Professor Falk was appointed as the, UN, the, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Palestinian Human Rights for six years term, and his work on Egypt has been impactful. Thank you all for joining us today and for giving us the opportunity to find out what happened to the Egyptian judiciary. I'd like to start by Professor Khalid Fahmi uh, to address the history. Your focus on the social and cultural history of the 19th century in Egypt, and with a particular emphasis on the social history of the military and the law, were there historical factors that led to this unprecedented moment of repression and unprecedented change to the judicial repression? Um, well, that's a wonderful question, but first let me say thank you so much for inviting me. It's a privilege to be uh, together with uh, my fellow panelists. Uh, it's a real honor. Um, as you pointed out, um, I have been working on the history of Egyptian state formation and social history together, uh, mostly in the 19th century. The Egyptian state, including the Egyptian judiciary, uh, <clears throat> dates to the 19th century. My first book was not about the judiciary. My first book was about, as you pointed out, was about the Egyptian military. And my argument in that book is that this military was not seen by the people, whom I call al-ahali, the Arabic word for the people, was not seen by them as their own. And they resisted it uh, using all uh, means uh, available to them. My latest book is about the judiciary and the medical system. It's both of them. And I also make a similar argument that the Egyptian people didn't see the judiciary as their own, and they didn't see the medical system as their own. These establishments, the judiciary and the medical establishment, were created to serve the state. Um, but my argument in that book shifted a bit. I'm not insisting on... I'm not seeing people just resisting. I'm seeing people accommodating this system, trying to make uh, the most out of it. <clears throat> with regards to the judiciary, with regards to kanun, you know, the Arabic word for law, uh, positive law, was really state law. This is an old tradition of an Ottoman tradition of the sultan passing legislation. And in the 19th century, law did not protect the people. Law was really protecting and upholding the rights of the state. When we see the first legislations, the very first acts of legislation by the Egyptian state, the modern Egyptian state, under Muhammad Ali, draconian measures, the punishment for people who fled from their villages, who absconded from the army, who uprooted cotton plants, 
who harbored any fugitives from the military, uh, <clears throat> who refused to pay taxes. And really, the punishment was capital punishment in all of these things, including uprooting cotton plants. So the state used law to protect its interests, and the people were cowed into submission by these draconian measures. Uh, but bit by bit, they tried, they found the legal system, they found new courts, they found loopholes through which they can uh, enter into the legal system in their quest for justice. This is the title of my book. Uh, and I trace many, many attempts by the people to make the most out of the system that they never really thought was theirs. Now, of course, things developed throughout the 19th century. There's a law school that is founded. Uh, generations of Egyptian lawyers, judges, legal experts are now trained in Egypt. They establish an enormous sense of pride in what has been uh, founded in Egypt, a professionalism. And they start really writing uh, law. Egyptian law becomes Egyptianized. Um, and uh, unlike what Islamists think, that this was an alien, imposed, non-Islamic, that is really not how the judges saw it. That is not how the people saw it. The problem that the Ahali had with the, with, the, with, the, with the law is not that it was secular or that it was imported from Europe. The problem is that it wasn't serving them. <clears throat> but what we see, as I said, <clears throat> throughout the 19th century, throughout the 20th century, is the professionalization of law and the self-pride of the judiciary and an attempt by the judiciary to establish itself as apart from the state, not a part of it, but distinct from it, and to try and uh, guard its independence and to serve the people. So basically, if we want to think about the history of the Egyptian legal system, it's this triad, it's this triangle between the state, the Khidiv first, then the king, then the president, and the judiciary, and the people. Uh, it's not just the executive and the judiciary. It's also how the people try to make the most out of uh, the system. <clears throat> what we say, and I will end with this, <clears throat> this is unprecedented, but uh, there are attempts constantly throughout the 19th century, throughout the 20th century, of the executive trying to turn the law and the judiciary into an agent uh, of the state. And the most famous example, or maybe infamous example, is the so-called massacre of the judiciary, the massacre of, of course, they were not massacred of, of the judges. This is something that happened in August 1969 under President Nasser, when there was a rumor that the judiciary, the, the judges in the judges club were getting together and not really serving uh, the, uh, the the centralized uh, uh, party that is the Arab Socialist Union and Hadlish Taraki, and um, through a rumor by a judge to the president, all the judges, more than 200, were sacked from their benches. So that is uh, just an example. One can mention other examples under Sadat and under Mubarak of the judiciary trying, of the executive trying to lay its hands on the judiciary, but also 
of the people trying to approach the, the judges and the court system to serve their interests. Thank you, Professor Fahmi. And this is interesting to see how the history always stretch itself, repeat itself, because we have seen attempts to that, sim that is similar to the uh, massacre of the judiciary uh, uh, um, under the ruling of Morsi and under the ruling of Sisi, sacrificing judges to renew the judiciary's blood to fit the state uh, needs has been always repeating itself through history. But that takes us to another interesting point in regards to changes to the judiciary, which is foreign policy. And for this, I'll ask Professor, I'll ask Dr. O'Kell, uh, uh, in your subsequent role as director of Freedom House in Egypt, uh, 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 like uh, that was in 2013 or 2012, you were one of 43 non-governmental organization workers convicted and sentenced in prison uh, a while in a widely publicized case. And this was allegedly for using foreign funds to foment unrest in Egypt. We were thrilled, of course, that you were uh, the case was closed and you were acquitted in 2018. However, there have been a significant change to the Egyptian legislation and rule of law in Egypt since then. How do you think that foreign powers like the U.S., for example, Western government, like play a role in these changes? Right. Well, well, first of all, like, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be speaking alongside with Professor Fahmi, Professor Falk, and uh, talk about this very important and, uh, and critical issue. Uh, well, let me clarify something at the beginning, because the, a lot of people get confused uh, about this. Um, case 173, the case that I was indicted uh, and I, the one that I was sentenced and then acquitted of, was never closed. It was never closed when we were sentenced after a year and a half being on trial and we were all found guilty. And uh, it has not, like, since then been closed. Let me take a little bit of a, a step backwards to explain like why did this case take place? And the target was not foreign NGOs or although the five organizations that were um, included in this trial were foreign organizations. Uh, however, the target was actually the local civil society. And the aim was to cut the lifeline and support and connection that the local civil society had with uh, the rest of the world and the international community. And now it has been actually 10 years, uh, actually to the day. I mean, like I remember like 10 years ago, it was my, my first time today to stand uh, in the cage in court. And it's the uh, case 173 is the gift that keeps giving to the Egyptian regime because it's still open. They still uh, prosecute so many civil society leaders uh, like Gesser um, Abdereze and Hussein Bahge, who are until today under this very case are banned from traveling, um, asset freeze, and they are not able to actually 
operate freely in, let alone their access to resources to be actually able to do the work. Uh, so this is one of the things that's actually related to the points to answer your question. And Khaled said something like very, very important at the beginning, and it relates to this issue, is that the people did not see that the judiciary is theirs, and they did not see the military is theirs. The U.S. and foreign policy also do not see what the Egyptian people see. And this is very important in terms of the issue of influence, because this kind of disconnect has an implication on influence. And if we look at why the U.S., for example, is um, having this kind of relationship, which I see that it's a relationship that is uh, more than anything, it's corrupting. You know, in, in so many ways, it's corrupting financially and it's corrupting legally and it's corrupting politically. But to, like the first I mean, response to direct response to your question, like whether I mean they have a role or not, is it influential or not? It's yes and no and depends. But it's also the question of is the changes that they inflict, is it like or, or have, is it serving their own purpose? in the first place. So I mean, generally, uh, the US or other country provide aids in order to have some strategic goals, stability, and having buying loyalty, having influence, and allegedly promote democracy. So when it comes to the first aspect of stability, it was very clear, for example, with uh, the fall of Mubarak, that all the money and all the aid that has been poured over the country, uh, $1.3 billion uh, of military aid each year, uh, in addition to the huge arms sales uh, and arms transfers to Egypt from the U.S., actually uh, just Less than a year before Mubarak fell, uh, the U.S. has transferred uh, arms for $3.2 billion. And yet, I mean, Mubarak fell in 18 days, and a lot of people understand this argument. So in terms of stability, uh, it is actually not serving that, that purpose. In terms of influence and loyalty, uh, and even like serving the interests of American people, uh, let me take a look at the our case. Case 173 had 17 Americans there. Uh, all the aid that, that the U.S. gave to Egypt did not prevent them from being indicted. And I, after a year and a half sentenced to prison, I mean, even in absentia, but this is very symbolic. And all the attempts that all the U.S. officials had at that time in order to prevent that from happening completely failed. But then this where the way of operation and the relationship, the structure of the relationship of between the U.S. and Egypt is corrupting uh, in the political sense and the legal sense. Uh, because during that time, although... Egypt resisted that they would just like let the Americans uh, off the hook in this case. They actually accepted that those who those Americans would be flown out of the country while they were in trial on bail, which is like five 
million dollars at that time, which is basically a public bribe. And again, like the the judge himself was so offended, he excused himself from the case. So this shows you, I mean, like this, even when they try to have influence, it's a corrupting influence in terms of law and in terms of democracy itself. Um, And the second thing, it just like, let me just like, like fast forward to uh, 2018, which is the year where we got, we all got acquitted. Uh, I mean, although like this is personally um, a positive outcome, I don't see it as a as a as a positive overall uh, steps towards democracy and towards support for Egypt civil society, because um, that only happened because the U.S. held $925 million of USAID. And this is when the Egyptian government moved to change uh, the situation. And how did it change it? It changed it by changing the law to allow those who are not uh, present in court to present an appeal to be represented by their lawyer, which was in the past, as you know better than I do, was not, um, was prohibited, like it wasn't legal. And at that time, I was like really puzzled by the position of the United States that is actually pushing for, like manipulating the law. And a very high level official from Egypt, which is actually telling me with pride that we changed the law so that you all get uh, acquitted. So, of course, I mean, like this is very negative in that sense and negative in the other sense, practically, because once the foreigners were off the hook, the Egyptians who are still in the case, like are still under pressure and they're still under prosecution because like part of the pressure is is taken off. And the last like corrupting financial side is that all the billions of dollars that is poured over uh, the Egyptian military, first of all, it emboldens the regime on one side. And second, it's not transparent. And just to give you like very quickly before I end like a figure to reflect how dire the situation is and like untransparent it is. The Egyptian military is one of the biggest in the region. But the defense budget is actually one of the lower end uh, and very moderate, down to 3.8 average over the past years. I mean like of course like this figure does not make any sense because if we look for example just in January, two arms sales deals in between Egypt and the US and Egypt and South Korea, one is for 2.5 billion, one is for 1.57 billion. It's already in just those two, it's higher than the total defense budget that is out that the people understand. Of course, like it's very clear that the procurement is out of this budget, but it also reflects the complete lack of transparency, which is again, uh, it's what I meant by like it is. Uh, corrupting financially, politically, and legally. 
Thank you so much, Dr. O'Kill. This was very eye-opening and it brings us to another very important side of the whole uh, discussion, which is the international law, since foreign policy has an effect, where does all this stand from in the international law? And that efforts usually pass and address unaddressed by the most of the Egyptian courts. And it brings me to the question, why do you think the Egyptian judges deny international law commitment? Uh, thanks so much for the question, and thanks to the conveners for organizing this important event. It's a privilege to be on this panel with such uh, notable authorities. Uh, my own experience uh, with um, international law and international lawyers over uh, a long period of time, now embarrassingly 60 years or so, uh, has led me to uh, a firm uh, understanding that Egypt, more than any other country in the Arab world, has uh, somehow in its educational system uh, generated the most outstanding international legal jurists. Uh, and uh, uh, among those are Boutrous Ghali and uh, George Abi Saab and uh, uh, many others. And so that there is something in the political culture of uh, Egypt uh, that has taken law and even international law seriously as part of uh, the pedagogy relevant to producing uh, skilled jurists. So the uh, autocratic uh, destruction of uh, judicial independence is peculiarly anguishing and uh, a very bad signal to the entire Arab world uh, of uh, how politics can uh, extinguish uh, a very uh, notable tradition of uh, judicial independence and uh, respect for law. Of course, this didn't start with Sisi, but it is uh, climaxing or reaching its, hopefully it's a climax, uh, and not something that will be even worse in the future. Uh, when coming to uh, your specific question, Yasmin, uh, I think that there are three kinds of responses. Uh, and, and let me pre uh, preface that by saying uh, that almost everywhere in the world, uh, judges have difficulty with international law. First of all, they're not very familiar with it. And uh, uh, even if they've studied it a bit years ago, they're uncomfortable with uh, international law arguments. They don't know quite uh, how to handle them, and that, in some ways, that's a uh, defect of legal education. And but it 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 gives one some perspective on uh, the uh, 
difficulties of making international work within national uh, constitutional systems, even the most uh, uh, successful and uh, uh, even those that uh, pride themselves on the adhering to the rule of law. Uh, and the second uh, point, I would a second sort of level of explanation, is that uh, there is among uh, judiciaries, and this is accentuated uh, by uh, an autocratic uh, political leadership, a nationalist bias, a sense that. Uh, national priorities, policy priorities, are the supreme uh, basis for reaching uh, legal judgments. That is, the, despite its pretensions, the supremacy of international law is, is rarely upheld, except in a commercial context and in certain kind of routine interactions, diplomatic immunity or uh, uh, communica- issues involving uh, communication and uh, tourism and things like that, where international law works very well. Uh, but where, where traditional interests of the state are involved, uh, it's a very weak uh, tool for influencing uh, the outcome of uh, judicial action, and particularly when it has the uh, when it's used to challenge the policies of the state. Where even if, for instance, in the U.S., the U.S. Supreme Court is very deferential to the executive on matters touching on foreign policy and very rarely uh, will override uh, executive uh, policy and and acts. And in addition to nationalism as a kind of ideology that flows out of autocracy, uh, there is a international uh, dimension of this, which I, I would label as statism, and that is uh, a quite widely endorsed sense uh, that state sovereignty is the ultimate source of authority and not uh, international legal instruments, even though they are adhered to. And very relevant to the behavior of the Egyptian state in recent years have been uh, such notable conventions, international treaties, as the Torture Convention and the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, um, both of which Egypt is a party to, and uh, very clearly uh, prohibit the practices that have been uh, become routine, unfortunately, during the CC years. Uh, 
My final point is that even the UN Charter is reluctant to impose international obligations on member states for matters within what they call their domestic jurisdiction and issues of uh, that can be uh, understood beneath the label of state security or uh, matters of uh, uh, that involve assessing human rights obligations in terms of civilizational values. Uh, these are there's a very uh, low willingness to implement international law unless it serves as it serves the convenience of geopolitical actors uh, and particularly the U.S. In other words, China's human rights are very much a subject of international pressure because it's a geopolitical antagonist. Egypt is a geopolitical ally or friend, and therefore it is protected against this kind of accountability. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA, to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Thank you so much, Professor Falk. This was very extremely helpful to connect to my next questions because, yes, it's right. Not it's, It wasn't all the time exchange judiciary's behavior under CC regime then rather than under Mubarak time. If so, how can we explain this change? Yeah, I think there is a difference. And I, I, I think um, one way to... Uh, uh, <clears throat> get into this difference is to reflect on uh, something that CC uh, uh, said <clears throat> um, nearly a year into his first term as president, just following the assassination of the uh, public prosecutor uh, Hisham Barakat in June of 2015. Uh, those of you who don't know the Egyptian system is like a akin to the attorney general. So the Egyptian attorney general was assassinated um, <clears throat> on the 29th of June. In his funeral, 
Sisi marched in the funeral in person, and he said the following, the hand of justice is handcuffed by the law. Swift justice, al-adala is handcuffed by the law. We will not tolerate this. We will amend the laws in order to be able to implement the law and have justice in the quickest way possible. We are facing terrorism, so we need laws with which we can uh, confront terrorism. We will amend the law or penal procedures to enable us to confront terrorism. I think this is a very revealing quote, and it shows how Sisi uh, thinks about the law and, um, and, of, and, and how he thinks of the current moment and the challenges that he faces. Uh, Sisi thinks that the mass uprising of 2011 to 2013 that actually got him into power, he thinks um, uh, uh, of them that they were not justified or uh, legitimate rather than seeing these mass uprisings and mass revolts and mass demonstrations as reflecting deep-seated legitimate concerns that white segments of the Egyptian population had towards the government, including the judiciary and the police. Rather than seeing it in this way, he saw uh, these uprisings as really a sign of a conspiracy, a conspiracy by uh, outside actors, uh, by uh, human rights groups, by Western governments that finance these groups, by Qatar, Turkey, and Serbia, uh, to bring down the Egyptian state. Uh, what he thinks, and really he has a, a, a near, um, a belief in a near messianic uh, role uh, that he has come to uh, say uh, to, to protect um, the Egyptian state and to restore it even to, uh, <clears throat> to a moment that it, uh, of glory and, and stability that uh, probably it never really had. I think he thinks that Mubarak was wrong in opening up the political system that allowed people to take to the streets. Um, and he thought that what is really at stake is the very existence <coughs> excuse me, of the Egyptian state. Uh, but he also, I think, thinks um, um, or thought of this moment as also a moment of opportunity, um, which is something that Mubarak never really did. Uh, Mubarak never thought of challenges as opportunities. CC does. Um, the opportunity, the way I think of it is as follows, the way he thought of it is as follows, um, that, you know, since 1952, since the founding of the modern Egyptian, you know, what we call the July state, the July 52 state, the Egyptian state, that is the deep Egyptian state, has been really fighting not only with the Egyptian people, but with each other, the constituent parts of the so-called deep state, that is the presidency, the army, the police, the intelligence services, and the judiciary are uh, fighting each other. Nasser, Sadat, and, and Mubarak were walking a tightrope and playing a very delicate balancing game, trying to appease these different um, these different uh, players and um, uh, play them off against each other. Um, I think CC saw 2013 as an opportune moment to end this state of affairs and to start what he calls really a new republic, 
um, the fourth or the third, I can't remember the count. Um, uh, he, he thinks that um, the, these new, these constituent parts should actually work in unison the way different parts work within a military camp. So he thinks that the state should be run the way um, a military camp uh, should be run. So no balancing act between different constituent parts. They should all toe the line. At the core of the state is the uh, military. And at the epicenter of it is Sisi himself as a representative of uh, the military. So whereas with Mubarak, we could could still talk about checks and balances between the executive, the judiciary, and the legislative, what we see under Sisi is a new political system in which the judiciary, together with the press, the parliament, uh, the executive, the police, all being subservient under uh, the military and all serving something called not the Egyptian people, but the Egyptian state. Thank you so much, Professor Fahmi. And um, that brings me, you said something that is very important, that Mubarak left a tiny space for political expression during his time, which was used to sometimes protect the judicial independence. And that brings me to my next question to Professor O'Kill, to Dr. O'Kill. But first, I have to remind everyone that we have Arabic interpretation for this event today, and the link is going to be posted on the YouTube live. Uh, please check it out if you need Arabic interpretation. Professor Dr. O'Kill, in, in 2005, human rights defenders like Ali Abdel Fateh protested to protect judicial independence against Mubarak aggression. Now, Ali and thousands of human rights defenders, activists, journalists, and even lawyers are behind bars because of their work by judicial proceedings that lack the minimum guarantees of fair trial, not to mention by the same judiciary that they protested to protect back in 2005. In your opinion, what draws the Egyptian judiciary to completely normalize with arbitrary practices that are not only attacking vital human rights, but it stabs the ind their independence and autonomy, and autonomy in the heart? Right. Um, great question. And um, I think let me just um, divide it into two parts, like why they are doing that. And the second part about judicial independence and rule of law. And why is actually you can find the answer in everything that Khaled said. Uh, but from the perspective of the judiciary, I mean, Khaled said like how the military sees the judiciary as a subservient uh, in the whole system to protect the military. And so does the judiciary itself for self-preservation. As an institution, they need to protect their privileges, their very existence, and uh, and their own safety, just not to come under the punitive acts of Sisi himself. So in order to do that, they have to perform and pose to the regime as a very essential tool of 
implementing their control or repressive practices. So everything that we see, for example, in terms of like the sweeping uh, verdicts of uh, executions and uh, the unfair um, uh, sentences that people uh, receive like in very casually and very frequently, these are not necessarily direct orders from the CC. It's, it is actually a response to the relationship and system and the, and, and the power relations that he created in the way that Khaled explained, where they see themselves that in order to preserve their existence, in order to show and pose as a very essential element for the survival of this regime, they act automatically or in a way organically in a way that actually they assume like it appeases the the regime. So this is the why. The second part is about like the it's it's actually this is breaching Egyptian uh, like judicial independence and rule of law. And again, like I would like to um, separate both of them uh, and just uh, just like want to highlight something we always speak about judicial independence as a good thing and it is a good thing uh, but we cannot isolate it from everything that's going on in the country uh, we always have this imaginary distinction or like kind of an isolated wall between the the judges or judiciary and the rest of society which does not exist they are part of society they suffer from the same social pathological issues that the society suffers. The patriarchy, the sectarianism, the um, sexual discrimination, religious discrimination, all these things are not imposed on them because of the regime. And it's not that they are like an evil entity or they are part of society. And if we are calling for, I mean, judicial independence as a tool for progression and democracy and freedom, we cannot look at it as um, a goal on its own uh, because it, it is a mean. But if we look at it as a goal, it's not necessarily, given the circumstances, is going to produce like positive outcomes. And finally, like talking about the rule of law, as again, like as as Khaled mentioned at the beginning, like how CC like discovered this uh, magic wand or like turning a challenge to an opportunity is actually what CC is accomplishing now is through the law. He institutionalized repression through the law. And three days ago, for example, a law came out that allows. The Egyptian intelligence to establish their own companies and practice in all like their operations as any other uh, independent company. Well, at the beginning, the the intelligence was practicing this in a shadowy way. They would create this like sort of a shadow company that goes under another acquisition that is very difficult to trail, and mainly 
they did that in order to acquire the media channels and um, and like websites and, and media outlets um, in a discreet way in order to control the narrative and control the media and, and just like like turn every media entity as like the state media. So they used to do it covertly. And then after that, it just became like kind of a normal practice. And they even had their own channel, <laughs> media channel. And then now, like with all the audacity, it's just turning it into law. I mean, it's like the Mubarak can actually do, let's solve the problem. We're not breaching the law. We're not um, violating the law. It's actually part of the law. Uh, the same thing, for example, I mean, like how they keep manipulating the law to serve their own, and by their, I don't mean the regime, it's particularly the military. So in 2014, for example, um, CC changed the law of um, that stipulates that uh, in order to buy weapons, the Ministry of Interior has to provide the permission. It changed the law so that the permission has to go from the Ministry of Defense, not the Ministry of Interior, in order to control the weapons market. So even that kind of like uh, sort of concentration of power using the law uh, is actually something that you're using for their own. Thank you, Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, O'Keel. That was um, so on point. And it derives me to ask my next question to uh, Professor Falk. Because last year, the Egyptian cabinet passed new amendments to the law governing the Supreme Constitutional Court. Speaking of institutionalizing violations to the law, violations to human rights, the amendments grant the Constitutional Court judicial oversight over the constitutionality of decisions issued by international organizations and entities and verdicts issues issued by foreign courts involving the Egyptian state. What do you understand from these changing? Is Egypt trying to remain a member of the international community, but on its own terms? Uh, that, that's a really interesting question you pose. Uh, I think uh, Egypt is, uh, in a sense, trying to... Uh, uh, pursue a kind of public relations campaign with the international community so that it doesn't look as bad as it is. Uh, in other words, this is a kind of facade of respect, uh, but in actuality, it is a affirmation of the primacy of national law and the disregard of uh, international authoritative uh, assessments of national behavior. And again, as I uh, tried to say earlier, one of the characteristic features of autocracy anywhere in the world is to shut off external sources of authority, to invalidate external sources of authority and to focus uh, the uh, focus respect for law to fuse 
respect for law with subservience to the state. And uh, that's the internal message, that you're a good Egyptian if you obey the state and and uh, disregard anything that contradicts that uh, source of ultimate political authority, including uh, the international uh, system when when it passes any sort of judgment in the International Court of Justice or at the Security Council or General Assembly. Uh, and this is this particular uh, behavior that you point uh, you call our attention to uh, represents a further step in the legal consolidation of autocracy. And it also, I think, uh, it's something that uh, Dr. O'Tale has been uh, emphasizing, and that is this uh, double movement of law, that on the one hand, the uh, law of as administered by and through the deep state and its uh, less deep institutions of administration wants to absolutize law and to uh, make law a, a uh, unchallengeable uh, source of authority. At the same time, it wants to invalidate any kind of uh, challenge to that kind of notion. And not only invalidate, but criminalize a challenge. Uh, if it comes from civil society or an, uh, international human rights groups or the UN itself. Uh, so this double movement of law on the one hand, absolutizing it, and on the other hand, subverting it, is very characteristic of the CC uh, style of governance. And uh, as has been explained by the prior uh, speakers, it very much uh, is, is a coherent scenario uh, for redoing uh, state society relations, even in uh, even discounting the continuities with the Mubarak period. In other words, this is something that can be seen as a continu continuation, but it also more uh, profoundly constitutes a uh, dangerous and regressive source of discontinuity. And, and that's what I think we've been uh, concentrating on. Let me stop there. Thank you so much, Professor Falk. And um, for our third and final round of questions before we take our audience question, first, I'd like to remind again that we have an interpretation, an Arabic interpretation link that's going to be posted on the YouTube live if you need Arabic interpretation. But as Professor Falk mentioned, and Dr. O'Kill and Dr. Khalid 
the Egypt attack on judicial independence and rule of law is unprecedented under a CC ruling. And not to mention that lawyers find themselves arrested for the same charges as their clients. The prosecution is complicitly turning a blind eye towards complaints of torture and forced disappearances. And the courts have been reviewing and extending pretrial detention in mass, issuing death sentences in mass. And the state security courts are acting as an agent of the state, not allowing any fair trials guarantees uh, in their trials. On top of that, Egypt is heavily counting on diplomacy and armed trade deals to avoid accountability. So I wanted to ask Professor Fahmi, they say history repeats itself. How do you see the future of rule of law in Egypt? Can it ever be restored? Uh, yes, it can be. Um, I think as I've been trying to, to say, we are witnessing a very bleak moment. Um, and um, I think uh, along the lines that have been already uh, touched upon by Professor Folk and by uh, Dr. Okay, um, this is not just an oppressive um, uh, uh, regime. It's not just one person. It's not just Sisi. Uh, we have to recognize uh, the fact that <clears throat> many segments of Egyptian society had um, struck a Faustian deal with Sisi, privileging stability over their own rights. Um, in what I think, and I've been trying to, 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 to say that this is a losing uh, deal because uh, it doesn't really bring stability. Um, without an independent judiciary, without the rule of law, without um, <clears throat> an independent judiciary, you really don't have uh, a stable political system. Um, you can have some form of stability for a short time, um, but the cost is high. The cost of, it's a, you know, a... a, a um, a, a, um, a system of low-level violence, um, hence the centrality of the military in the political system. Um, and sadly, this can go on for many, many years. Um, and uh, um, I would like to share uh, Professor Polk's belief that this is a climax, but really I, I think things can continue to get worse. And there is room for it to get worse for the reasons that Nancy has been mentioning. Egypt is backed up by uh, many, many important players um, and the system, the regime can get away uh, literally with murder. Um, but, but things, uh, how can we think of a situation in which things can get better, in which really um, the, the, Judges are uh, self-respecting and uh, in which the rule of law um, is, uh, is paramount. I don't think this is something the state will give us. That is the executive um, CC. I mean, the, uh, for the reasons we mentioned, they think they are bringing stability. They think that any opening up can really bring the whole house tumbling down. 
they cannot take this risk. Um, <clears throat> and for me, the stakes could not be really higher uh, than now. Um, where I think things can happen differently is for judges and lawyers and law professors and people who work within the legal system um, in in Nieba, in that is the prosecution, um, to uh, think that uh, their profession is at stake, uh, to defend their own profession, to uphold their own dignity, to realize, and this is how I think of my own work, that they have a venerable history that they come from. It's what Professor Polk had mentioned, you know, that it, it is really not an accident that Egypt produced these jurists and these judges. It is not an accident that Egypt had produced judges who wrote the civil codes of many Arab nations. Um, if more and more judges, if more and more lawyers, if more and more uh, uh, legal practitioners come to realize the history of where they come from, and that there is much more at stake than just serving the state. Um, this is not easy to do. I, I, I understand for the reasons Nancy mentioned, um, they think of their existence as connected to uh, the executive, to the army, to the state, to Sisi. Um, but there is another way of thinking. Uh, and, and occasionally we see these people standing up and stepping forward. Uh, Hisham Genena was, uh, was one, and many, many other judges who realized that, um, that there is something, that the profession itself is at stake. And we see this within different uh, uh, professional groups, within different syndicates. In the other day, someone, a member of the um, filmmaker syndicates, who's imprisoned, um, in, you know, he resigned. He said, the syndicate is not addressing me, is not defending me, it's defending someone else. I do not want to be a member of the syndicate. Uh, so uh, it, it's, uh, it, if, we, if we see more people, more judges, more lawyers who, who say that our own standing in society, our own prestige, our own profession, our own future, is really at stake, is being tainted. That is one, one way. And the other, of course, is, is for people to, to stick to, you know, my argument in my book, you know, in their quest of justice, to realize that uh, their existence predates the state. and stopping the attacks on the independence of the judiciary and supporting victims of arbitrary practices in Egypt? Uh, well, it's, it's, it plays a very, very important role. And it should take um, like a, a, a step or a, a front role than it is taking right now. And this is partly because of, and I'm personally self-critical of our um, human rights movement in general and our approach. And it's like, but, but we do have our reason and excuses that most of the time we, we are forced to appeal 
for like countries that the U like the US and the major powers in order to put pressure on those regimes to stop the repression, to stop their practices. But while doing that, we are reproducing the very system that we want to change. We are perpetuating the cycle of asking the, the US and the other powers to put that pressure and uh, on those regimes. And even when it works, this um, is still I problematic. Think a, I think there is a glitch. People are saying that they cannot oh. hear us. Okay. Um, You're muted now. If we can hear each other, I think people could hear us. Okay, well, um, I'm just following the live chat. They say they cannot hear us. Oh, oh okay. Um, uh, it is fixed. Okay, great. Sorry to interrupt, Professor Okay, Dr. Okel. Um, so I was just saying uh, that when it works, when this pressure from the big powers, the U.S., works, it actually has like a, a negative effect as well because it incentivizes the government to keep using those activists and victims as bargaining chips. So every time they want like a bigger arms sales and bigger um I mean, favor or ask, they would just like pick a high profile activist and put them in jail. Uh, and that becomes actually a great, it's just like it's a great deal for them. And the Egyptian government are actually very good at this game. And hats off, they play it very well also on showing or putting an appearance that there is change. So for example, taking like this bold step of lifting the emergency state after decades where it was like imposed, uh, this is seen like something positive, but I mean, two days later, they would change, they make changes in the law that would actually contradict everything that uh, the reason why we wanted the emergency state to be lifted. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, I mean, instead of that, we would like the pressure and solidarity from the international community to push for changing the environment for the activities of civil society, because it should be the Egyptians that are putting the pressure. It should be the Egyptians that have the means and the resources and the freedom and the setup to be able to do that, not a pleading for a bigger power in order to do that. Now, thanks to the Egyptian regime, uh, most of us are in exile and we became so many right now. So kind of we formed and, and try to work and try to put pressure. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But still, like, again, like, we cannot do this work from outside without the connection for an active and, and vibrant civil society on the inside. He's not getting the credible data, the credible data reports, the credible documentation that they provide. It is actually in, in favor of the regime that they would have like credible documentation of everything that happened because that leaves the room for anyone to exaggerate or put the numbers they want for any uh, self-serving purposes. Uh, so that's another thing. And, and finally, I mean, we should, I mean, put pressure on those 
great powers to stop their corrupting approaches, to stop supporting and emboldening those regimes. Uh, and because at the very end, even for this, the very interest of this power, those like corrupting mechanisms comes to bite them back uh, later. And, and just to give you a live example from what we're seeing today and what's happening with the sanctions over Russia, and a lot of people now uh, are calling for, in addition to the sanctions on Russia, to put sanctions on and, and target Putin's assets himself. Now, I mean, like there's an interesting, a very good article today in the New York Times uh, by Paul Krugman addressing these issues. And yes, it is a vulnerability for Putin. But the idea is like, how can you surgically target Putin's uh, corruption and assets abroad and and, and uh, assets in like this, the tax haven places without scratching the, the protective uh, layer of the other corrupt governments and previous and current leaders. You cannot do that. You cannot just target him without opening up like the whole pathological tumor of corruption. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Kale. And uh, speaking of what we can do, we are also wanting to ask Professor Falk about changes of accountability. What are the changes of accountability as international legal professionals? What we can do to support the victims in Egypt? Um, well, that's a, a daunting question in a way, because uh, what we've been all saying is that the CC autocracy is uh, exceedingly hostile to respect for any kind of accountability uh, procedures, internal or international. Egypt, notably, is uh, not a party to the Rome Statute that governs the International Criminal Court, and so even Theoretically, it isn't uh, uh, vulnerable to that kind of legal challenge, which has been used recently in relation to Israel and uh, the U.S. actually for its crimes in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, the I think for uh, if we talk, it's important to distinguish between trying to exert pressure in the specific context of abuse of state power. Uh, what Dr. O'Keel has been very uh, knowledgeably uh, addressing, uh, to distinguish that from systemic change, that is from challenging uh, this kind of uh, restructuring of the state-society relations, which in my view won't uh, happen as a consequence of this sort of uh, pressure in specific contexts. It requires one of two things to take place, either a, a formidable uh, oppositional movement backed by global solidarity, uh, brings forth a new vision of state-society relations and uh, 
the restoration of democracy, uh, a second Arab Spring, so to speak. Uh, uh, that's one possibility. And the other possibility is a, a shift in the geopolitical uh, alignment structure, which isn't doesn't look very likely, but uh, stranger things have happened. And uh, a less supportive uh, relationship with the United States and with Saudi Arabia in, in the region would make a huge difference in the uh, sense that stability can be achieved in the manner that Sisi has been uh, seeking to institutionalize. So that I think if one's really concerned, one has to look at these, with systemic change, one has to look at these two uh, avenues of uh, possible uh, transformation. And uh, the because illiberal uh, regimes, particularly ones that have the support of the armed forces, and, and none of us have talked about the degree to which uh, the Egyptian military is implicated in the private sector, uh, which precedes Sisi, but I'm sure has been accentuated uh, during the period of Sisi's rule. So that there, it's it's a very uh, difficult. Uh, I mean, it's not only a Faustian bargain; it's a real structure. It's a structure of mutual uh, benefit, and I think that's what uh, uh, Dr. O'Keel had in mind by ter- talking about this: the deep uh, or the invisible character of corruption. That this. Uh, binds the absolute state to uh, an exploitative uh, private sector. And that, in turn, is linked by the class structure, the elites in Egypt to uh, a neoliberal globalization, which is also uh, a source of invisible corruption in various forms. Uh, so I think those uh, issues are very important in understanding uh, what can be done in the pre- present uh, framework, within the present framework. And I would just mention in closing one thing, that an event like this is very important in conveying a sense of what Egypt could be. And and I think uh, uh, the last uh, comments of uh, Dr. Salmi uh, put, uh, put that in clear perspective. Uh, civil society, global solidarity has a great role to play in uh, allowing the perception of the Sisi regime to be seen as an illegitimate political uh, form of governance. 
a strong end note. Thank you so much, Professor Falk. Um, now to move to very interesting question from our audience. Um, to what extent, if any, do regime prosecutors and judges rely on U.S. European legal governmental networks for training and professionalization? And how does this affect the status of judicial independence in Egypt? Um, we can all, all, all answer this question. I'll start with uh, Professor Fahmi. What do you think? No, I, I, uh, I think I'd like to defer to Nancy. I think she, she knows more about, about the training of, uh, I mean, these kinds of connections than I do. Um, I know that there is some kind of connections, and, but I'm not familiar with, nothing comes to mind immediately now, frankly. Of course, Professor Dr. Nancy. Well, I mean, I, I don't know any better, but, uh, but just like in terms of, of the dynamics and, um, I mean, and I know more about the European side and European Commission and those trainings. Um, first of all, I can, I, I can only co comment on their effectiveness. It's just like, let's say like it's, they go and genuinely get the training and um, uh, and the guidance of uh, like the European side and come back. The problem is that you know, like this saying is, like, if only we know. It's not lack of knowledge that is preventing them from adhering to the law. It's not that they have no idea what like the proper legal procedures should be. It is the system that creates this, uh, that leads to that. And also like more often than not is that these are opportunities of rewarding those prosecutors. The ones who are actually more loyal to the regimes are the ones who are selected to go to those places. The, the only part that I know of uh, also that they really benefit from, and actually they are very advanced in, is all the approaches for um, surveillance and uh, mechanisms of uh, monitoring uh, and tapping calls. And this side of, this is not like a legal side, but like a lot of prosecutors go and have those trainings and actually recruit uh, people who are able to uh, understand those, it's like some of them are actually like very young and very hip and understand this new technologies. And this is like the, the, the value added from those um, trainings. And at the end of the day, it serves the regime. Uh, it's not serving the people. Again, back to the very sorry, like the point that uh, Professor Fahmi made. Thank you so much. And I also would like to note that I know that the American Bar Association, for example, uh, um, provides aid in training and in funding to uh, the Institution on Judicial uh, Studies, which is the official training facility for judges and prosecutors in Egypt. On the other hand, the lawyer syndicate in Egypt does not receive the same uh, aid, which 
does not equalize the training and the, the, the experience between both sides of the judicial system, which is lawyers and judges. And we see that this does not come without governmental persuasion, of course. Um, well, the next question touched on... Touched on a short point. Uh, Sorry, of course. Please go ahead, Professor Park. I think it's interesting to, in the Egyptian context, to contrast the heavy influence of U.S. training and uh, shaping of the military with the relative uh, autonomy of the Egyptian educational system. I mean, Egypt as I said at the very beginning, has a very proud tradition uh, legally, and it really doesn't uh, depend on uh, having uh, Sometimes Egyptian elites like to send their children uh, to uh, study part of it, get part of their legal education uh, overseas. But essentially, uh, Egypt... Uh, militarily is very dependent and very reflective of its uh, American influence. Whereas I think whatever happens within this judicial legal framework, one has to uh, attribute to uh, the logic of Faustian bargains that has was earlier discussed. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That is a great point, Professor Falk. Um, we have one more question before we end our discussion today, which is, uh, how do you suggest we understand the appointment of a Copt to lead the highest court in Egypt? Just to correct that, he's not leading. He's just one of other seven leaders, but it is interesting. Can I uh, jump in? <clears throat> uh, um, <clears throat> on a certain level, of course, it's it's a welcome move. Um, Copts are uh, <clears throat> uh, discriminated against in in various uh, uh, key positions in the state, most notably in the military. Um, so. Appointing a um, a cop to the uh, Supreme uh, Constitutional Court is um, a welcome move in a sense. Um, but if we're talking about uh, cops and the law, I think um, it would be worth our while stressing the right of cops to be treated equally, especially when we uh, when they have to confront cases of sectarian um, tension, especially in the countryside, especially in Upper Egypt. Every now and then we have some of these cases. Most occasionally it happens to be a dispute about performing uh, uh, Coptic rituals in a certain building uh, that is disputed whether or not it is authorized as a church or authorized for services to be performed therein. Um, and then we have tensions and sometimes um, 
physical violence and sometimes casualties there. Um, here, the law is suspended repeatedly. We have been uh, dealing with these cases since the 70s. The government decides rather than uphold the principle of uh, due process and equality before the law and um, the independence of and, and the thoroughness of investigations, it decides to suspend the entire legal system and address these tensions uh, in a different way through the police, through mediation, through um, intervention by big public officials and public figures who sit and mediate and basically tell cops to give up their rights, to give up their legal rights in return for police protection. That is, again, the same Faustian bargain. Um, and this is something that the Coptic Church is complicit with. The Coptic Church, since the 70s, have basically told its people, its flock, you know, you give up your political rights in return for us mediating with the state to give you protection. And uh, what we saw in 2011 and 2012 and 2013 is <clears throat> many large segments of the Coptic population, especially youth, standing up, stepping forward and saying, enough of this deal. We need to be treated as citizens, not as Copts. <clears throat> we need to be treated equally. Uh, we don't want quotas. We don't want police protection. We want to be treated. And they were saying this against the officials in the, in the, in the uh, Ministry of Interior, which manages these tensions, but also against the Coptic hierarchy and the Coptic, uh, the church leadership. Uh, so, you know, if you tell me um, <clears throat> appointing a Coptic judge or a Coptic general or a Coptic governor or a Coptic ambassador or a Coptic uh, minister, I am all for it, but not when this means for cops not to be treated as equal citizens and not for the law to be implemented in spirit and in, uh, in its letter to uphold the principle of equality of everybody before the law. Thank you so much, Professor Fahmi. And uh, I wonder if anyone else would like to comment on this question. Um, well, I, I think Professor Fahmi is just like gave a very comprehensive and elaborate answer. And but I just want to take it a little bit from a broader perspective of the idea is, is it a good thing? Yes, it is a good thing. But, but it is as good as having a woman minister or having a woman judge uh, it is um, it is not taking into consideration the implication of this and most of the time it is done and uh, and put forward as for optics for showing that there is progress but even if this is the purpose that's fine i mean like it's we're gaining a small win but we need to really make a like an important distinction between um 
diversity and inclusion. Uh, having diversity, having uh, the one cop or the one woman or the or the few people from a certain background, that does not necessarily mean that those people are included in the power process. Are do not have particular interests. Uh, I mean, like or particularly have equal powers in that position. And the second thing that not that does not necessarily mean that they are serving the interests of the people or the people they represent. I mean, like as Khaled like said said it like very uh, articulately that how like this is like so far removed from understanding the dynamics and what happens to the Christian minorities in Egypt. And I would just like to give you one example. Yes, I mean like having like a, a cop uh, judge. Um, most recently, the FBI um, found that there is an Egyptian spy uh, working for the Egyptian regime uh, in order to spy on uh, the activists in New York um, and those who are opposing the CC. This person is a cop. So. It just doesn't mean that there is um, someone from a marginalized or a minority or discriminated against group is placed in a position uh, that seemingly a position of power does not first reflect that they are actually in power. And second, does not reflect that they are serving the interests of those groups that they are representing or supposed to represent. Thank you, Dr. O'Kale. Professor Falk, any final remarks on this question? Uh, just a word. Uh, the, the two preceding speakers are real experts on uh, this topic. But it's obvious to me that this is a kind, this should be viewed as tokenism in a wider uh, Egyptian uh, setting of uh, discrimination against uh, the Coptic minority. And uh, uh, tokenism, again, is a, uh, should be understood partly as a, a search for uh, domestic and international legitimacy and is um, uh, consistent with the idea that uh, the purpose of the state is to uh, maintain over time uh, stability and coercive stability and, and uh, co-opting members of an aggrieved minority is one way, of, one tactic to achieve that end. Thank you so much for an impeccable discussion today that was very extremely full of information. Thank you so much, Professor Khaled Fahmi, Dr. Nancy O'Khil, and Professor Rachel Falk. And I hope that this discussion today is a call to all the civil society, human rights activists, and everyone who cares about the unprecedented level of attack to the Egyptian judiciary. Join our call today to stand in solidarity with the victims in Egypt and to call for a real immediate change to restore rule of law. Thank you. So so much for tuning in. Thank you to the U.S. Committee, Haymarket, and our sponsors for making it happen. And have a good day. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. 
And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.